Welcome to Real Paranormal Activity, the network. Entertainment you'll enjoy. You are listening to an RPA production where people gather. Foss Corporation, LLC. Welcome to the Mansion on the Hill. This is the home of Terry's Serious Moments. Stories of oddness, of weirdness of nature gone strange. This is season four. We thank you for coming along for the ride. Hope you enjoy it. Hello everybody, this is Terry from Texas. I hope you all had a pleasant 4th of July weekend here in the States. And for those of you around the world, I hope you just had a pleasant weekend. Anyway, I want to get right into our story, and it's about remote viewing and the 1st Earth Battalion. Uh, Sounds kind of strange, and it is. We'll get into it. Remote viewing, if you're not familiar with it, is the ability or the practice of seeking impressions about a distant or unseen target purportedly using extrasensory perception, ESP, or sensing with the mind. The claims of this are that the alleged paranormal ability to perceive a remote or hidden target without the support of the senses. The year that it was proposed was 1970, and the original proponents were Russell Targ and Harold Putoff. Subsequent proponents were Ingo Swan, Joseph McMonagall, and Courtney Brown. Remote viewing experiments have historically been criticized for lack of proper controls and repeatability. There is no scientific evidence that remote viewing exists, and the topic of remote viewing is generally regarded as pseudoscience. Typically, a remote viewer is expected to give information about an object, event, person, or location that is hidden from physical view and separated at some distance. It is mostly not associated with clairvoyance for some odd reason, which is strange because in my way of thinking, they accomplish the same mission in nearly identical ways. I have a feeling it's a snobbery issue Well, we're not using paranormal abilities to do this. We're just doing this with our minds. Physicists Russell Targ and Harold Putoff, parapsychology researchers at Stanford Research Institute, or SRI, are generally credited with coining the term remote viewing to distinguish it from the closely related concept of clairvoyance. Although, according to Targ, The term was first suggested by Ingo Swan in December of 1971 during an experiment at the American Society for Psychical Research 
in New York City. Remote viewing was popularized in the 1990s upon the declassification of certain documents related to the Stargate project, a $20 million research program that had started in 1975 and was sponsored by the U.S. government in an attempt to determine any potential military application of psychic phenomena. The program was terminated in 1995 after it failed to produce any actionable intelligence information. In early occult and spiritualist literature, remote viewing was known as telesthesia and traveling clairvoyance. The late Rosemary Ellen Guiley described it as seeing remote or hidden objects clairvoyantly with the inner eye or in alleged out-of-body travel. That makes it interesting. The study of psychic phenomena by major scientists started in the mid-19th century. Early researchers included Michael Faraday, Alfred Russell Wallace, Russell Osgood Mason, and William Crookes. Their work predominantly involved carrying out focused experimental tests on specific individuals who were thought to be psychically gifted. Reports of apparently successful tests were met with much skepticism from the scientific community. In the 1930s, J.B. Ryan expanded the study of paranormal performance into larger populations by using standard experimental protocols with unselected human subjects. As with the earlier studies, Ryan was reluctant to publicize this work too early because of the fear of criticism from mainstream scientists. This continuing skepticism, with its consequences for peer review and research funding, ensured that paranormal studies remained a fringe area of the scientific exploration. By the 1960s, the prevailing counterculture attitudes muted some of the prior hostility. The emergence of what is termed New Age thinking and the popularity of the human potential movement provoked a mini-renaissance that renewed public interest in consciousness studies and psychic phenomena and helped to make support more available for research into such topics. In the early 1970s, Harold Puthoff and Russell Targ joined the Electronics and Bioengineering Laboratory at Stanford Research Institute, or SRI, now SRI International, where they initiated studies of the paranormal that were, at first, supported with private funding from the Parapsychology Foundation and the Institute of Noetic Sciences. In the late 1970s, the physicists John Taylor and Eduardo Balanovsky tested the psychic Matthew Manning in remote viewing, and the results proved completely unsuccessful. One of the early experiments, lauded by proponents as having improved the methodology of remote viewing testing and as raising future experimental standards, was criticized as leaking information to the participants by inadvertently leaving clues. Some later experiments had negative results when these clues were eliminated. The viewer's advice in the Stargate project was always so unclear and non-detailed that it has never been used by any intelligence operation. In the early 1990s, the Military Intelligence Board, which I believe is an oxymoron right there, chaired by Defense Intelligence Agency Chief Harry 
E. Soyster appointed Army Colonel William Johnson to manage the remote viewing unit and evaluate its objective usefulness. Funding dissipated in late 1994 and the program went into decline. The project was transferred out of DIA to the CIA in 1995. In 1995, the CIA hired the American Institutes for Research, or AIR, aren't they lovely for using letters, to perform a retrospective evaluation of the results generated by the Stargate project. Researchers included Ray Hyman and Jessica Utz. Utz maintained that there had been a statistically significant positive effect, with some subjects scoring 5 to 15 percent above chance. Hyman argued that Utz's conclusion that ESP had been proven to exist is premature to say the least. Isn't it wonderful when the two people working on it are at odds on the beliefs? Hyman said the findings had yet to be replicated independently and that more investigation would be necessary to legitimately claim the existence of paranormal functioning. Based upon both of their studies, which recommended a higher level of critical research and tighter controls, the CIA terminated the $20 million project in 1995. Thanks, guys. Time magazine stated in 1995 that three full-time psychics were still working on a $500,000 a year budget at Fort Meade, Maryland, which at that time would soon be closed. The AIR report concluded that no usable intelligence data was produced in the program. David Goslin of the American Institute for Research said, there's no documented evidence it had any value to the intelligence community. Following Utz's emphasis on replication and Hyman's challenge on interlaboratory consistency in the AIR report, the Princeton Engineering Anomalies Research Lab conducted several hundred trials to see if they could replicate the SAIC and the SRI experiments. They created an analytical judgment methodology to replace the human judging process that was criticized in past experiments, and they released a report in 1996. They felt the results of the experiments were consistent with the SRI experiments. Statistical flaws have been proposed by others in the parapsychology community and within the general scientific community. Hansen, Utz, and Marwick concluded the pair remote viewing experiments depart from commonly accepted criteria for formal research in science. In fact, they are undoubtedly some of the poorest quality ESP experiments published in many years. A variety of scientific studies of remote viewing have been conducted. Early experiments produced positive results, but they had invalidating flaws. None of the more recent studies have shown positive results when conducted under properly controlled conditions. That lack of successful experiments has led mainstream scientific community to reject remote viewing based on the absence of an evidence base, the lack of a theory which would explain remote viewing, and the lack of experimental techniques which can provide reliably positive results. C. E. M. Hansel, who evaluated the remote viewing experiments of parapsychologists such as Putoff, Targ, John Bisha, and Brenda Dunn, 
noted that there were a lack of controls and precautions were not taken to rule out the possibility of fraud. He concluded the experimental design was inadequately reported and too loosely controlled to serve any useful function. Basically, he called it all pretty much a load of metamuffins or road apples. The psychologist Ray Hyman says that even if the results from remote viewing experiments were reproduced under specified conditions, they would still not be a conclusive demonstration of the existence of psychic functioning. He blames this on the reliance on a negative outcome. The claims on ESP are based on the results of experiments not being explained by normal means. He says that the experiments lack a positive theory that guides as to what to control on them and what to ignore. That parapsychologists have not yet come close to having a positive theory as yet. Seems like the traditional science community thinks the paranormal arm of science just ain't true. Hyman also says that the amount and quality of the experiments on RV are way too low to convince the scientific community to abandon its fundamental ideas about causality, time, and other principles due to its findings still not having been replicated successfully under careful scrutiny. Martin Gardner has written that the founding researcher Harold Putoff was an active Scientologist prior to his work at Stanford University and that this influenced his research at SRI. In 1970, the Church of Scientology published a notarized letter that had been written by Putoff while he was conducting research on remote viewing at Stanford. The letter read, in part, Although critics viewing the system Scientology from the outside may form the impression that Scientology is just another of many quasi-educational, quasi-religious schemes it is, in fact, a highly sophistical and highly technological system more characteristic of modern corporate planning and applied technology. Well, that's one man's opinion. Among some of the ideas that Putoff supported regarding remote viewing was the claim in the book Occult Chemistry that two followers of Madame Blavatsky, if you don't know who she was, Googler, founder of Theosophy, were able to remote view the inner structure of atoms. Michael Shermer investigated remote viewing experiments and discovered a problem with the target selection list. According to Shermer, with the sketches, only a handful of designs were usually used, such as lines and curves, which could depict any object and be interpreted as a hit. Shermer has also written about confirmation and hindsight biases that have occurred in remote viewing experiments. Various skeptic organizations have conducted experiments for remote viewing and other alleged paranormal abilities with no positive results under properly controlled conditions. The psychologists David Marks and Richard Kamen attempted to replicate Russell Targ and Harold Putoff's remote viewing experiments that were carried out in the 70s at SRI. In a series of 35 studies, they were unable to replicate the results, so they investigated the procedure of the original experiments. Marks and Kamen discovered that the notes given to the judges in Targ and Putoff's experiments contained clues as to which order they were carried out. 
such as referring to yesterday's two targets, or they had the date of the session written at the top of the page. They concluded that these clues were the reason for the experiment's high hit rates. According to Terence Hines, examination of the few actual transcripts published by Targ and Putoff show that just such clues were present. To find out if the unpublished transcripts contained cues, Marx and Kamen wrote to Targ and Putoff requesting copies. It is almost unheard of for a scientist to refuse to provide his data for independent examination when asked, but Targ and Putoff consistently refused to allow Marx and Kamen to see copies of the transcripts. Marx and Kamen were able to obtain copies of the transcripts from the judge who used them. The transcripts were found to contain a wealth of cues. Thomas Gilovich has written, Most of the material in the transcripts consists of the honest attempts by the participants to describe their impressions. The transcripts also contained considerable extraneous material that could aid a judge in matching them to the correct targets. In particular, there were numerous references to dates, times, and sites previously visited that would enable the judge to place the transcripts in proper sequence. Astonishingly, the judges in the Targ put-off experiments were given a list of target sites in the exact order in which they were used in the tests. According to Marx, when the cues were eliminated, the results fell to a chance level. Marx was able to achieve 100% accuracy without visiting any of the sites himself, but by using the cues. James Randi has written that controlled tests by several other researchers, eliminating several sources of cueing and extraneous evidence present in the original tests, produced negative results. Students were also able to solve put-off and targs locations from the clues that had inadvertently been included in the transcripts. Marx and Kamen concluded, Until remote viewing can be confirmed in conditions which prevent sensory cueing, the conclusions of targ and put-off remain an unsubstantiated hypothesis. In 1980, Charles Tart claimed that a rejudging of the transcripts from one of Targ's and Putoff's experiments revealed an above-chance result. Targ and Putoff again refused to provide copies of the transcripts, and it was not until July 1985 they were made available for study when it was discovered they still contained sensory cues. Marx and Christopher Scott wrote, Considering the importance for the remote viewing hypothesis of adequate cue removal, Tart's failure to perform this basic task seems beyond comprehension. As previously concluded, remote viewing has not been demonstrated in the experiments conducted by Putoff and Tart, only the repeated failure of the investigators to remove sensory cues. The information from the Stargate Project remote viewing sessions was vague and included a lot of irrelevant and erroneous data. It was never useful in any intelligence operation and it was suspected that the project managers, in some cases, changed the reports so they would fit background cues. Marx, in his book The Psychology of the Psychic, discussed the flaws in the Stargate Project in detail 
He wrote that there were six negative design features of the experiments. The possibility of cues or sensory leakage was not ruled out. No independent replication. Some of the experiments were conducted in secret, making peer review impossible. And Marx noted that the judge, Edwin May, was also the principal investigator for the project, and this was problematic, making huge conflict of interest with collusion, cueing, and fraud being possible. Marx concluded the project was nothing more than a subjective delusion, and after two decades of research, it had failed to provide any scientific evidence for remote viewing. Marx also suggested that the participants of remote viewing experiments are influenced by subjective validation, a process through which correspondences are perceived between stimuli that are in fact associated purely randomly. Professor Richard Wiseman, a psychologist at the University of Hertfordshire and a fellow of the Committee for Skeptical Inquiry, or CSI, has pointed out several problems with one of the early experiments at SAIC, including information leakage. However, he indicated the importance of its process-oriented approach and of its refining of remote viewing methodology, which meant that researchers replicating their work could avoid these problems. Wiseman later insisted that there were multiple opportunities for participants on that experiment to be influenced by inadvertent cues and that these cues can influence the results when they appear. Now here's, here's a list of some of the participants in the remote viewing study. Ingo Swan, who was a prominent research participant in remote viewing. Pat Price, who was an early remote viewer. Joseph McMonigle, an early remote viewer. Courtney Brown, who was a political scientist and founder of the Farsight Institute. David Marks, a critic of remote viewing, after finding sensory cues and editing in the original transcripts generated by Targan Putoff at Stanford Research Institute in the 70s. So the guy that criticized him was also one of the participants. Uri Geller. Anybody my age should remember Uri Geller because he was the darling of the talk show set in the 70s because he was the Israeli soldier who could bend spoons with his mind. Uri Geller was the subject of a study by Targan put off at SRI. Remote viewing. Clairvoyance. Same thing as far as I'm concerned. Is it worth anything? I don't know. There seems to be people who have the ability of clairvoyance who have helped police departments solve crimes, murders, missing people, things like that. So is it a hit or miss proposition? Uh, is it a 10% true, 90% false? In my way of thinking, if it's 10% wrong, it's 100% wrong. If it's going to be true, it's going to be 100% of the time, not these low numbers they have produced. I was watching a 2009 movie the other night called The Men Who Stare at Goats. Have you seen it? Weird title, I know. What I thought was interesting was that this pretty freaky and far out movie was based on fact, even with much fictionalization going on in the movie. The 1st Earth Battalion was the name proposed by Lieutenant Colonel Jim Channon, a U.S. soldier who had served in Vietnam. 
for his idea of a new military of super soldiers to be organized among New Age lines. Why among New Age lines? Because Jim Channon was offered a leave of absence from the army to go investigate this New Age movement. And he spent a good bit of time involved in it. He just threw himself in wholeheartedly and did a lot of research on the subject. Therefore, his mind was more set to believe what was there. He was a very creative individual, apparently, because he's still around, and, and very intelligent. But I have to wonder if some of the New Age practices may have been a little chemically induced, shall I say, or chemically affected. Anyway, that's my opinion. I'm not casting aspersions on the man. I'm just saying that you know, in that time period, who knows? According to the book, The Men Who Stare at Goats, by journalist John Ronson, Channon spent time in the 70s with many of the people in California credited with starting the Human Potential Movement and subsequently wrote an operations manual for a First Earth Battalion. The manual was a 125-page mixture of drawings, graphs, maps, polemical essays, and point-by-point redesigns of every aspect of military life. Channon imagined a new battlefield uniform that would include pouches for ginseng regulators, divining tools, foodstuffs to enhance night vision, and a loudspeaker that would automatically emit indigenous music and words of peace. Channon believed that the Army could be the principal moral and ethical basis on which politics would harmonize in the name of the Earth. Harmonize. Huh. Sounds to me like the harmonic convergence, or where everybody went to get their harmonicas converged. He declared that the 1st Earth Battalion's primary allegiance was to the planet Earth. Channon envisioned that the 1st Earth Battalion would organize itself informally, uniforms without uniformity, structure without status, and unity powered by diversity, and members would be multicultural, with each race contributing to rainbow power. He also proposed as a guiding principle that members of the 1st Earth Battalion seek non-destructive methods of conflict resolution because their first loyalty was to the planet. Channon adopted the term warrior monk for potential members of the 1st Earth Battalion. According to the book Mind Wars by Donald McRae, each member of the 1st Earth Battalion would be sworn to uphold a credo of high commandos and guerrilla gurus. This was their belief. This was their credo. I have the capacity and therefore the duty to contribute to the development of myself, my associates, and our planet simultaneously. I will organize a self-supporting high commando group that will create and perform evolutionary breakthrough actions on behalf of people and planet. One people, one planet. I will then pass on this concept to others who are capable of generating further self-organizing commando teams. I will await the time when my group can connect naturally with others at higher and higher levels of awareness and performance. The natural guard. Post-Vietnam was a time when military morale and enrollment were at an all-time low. 
During this period, the U.S. Army needed to drastically shift approaches and prepare to defeat a vastly larger Soviet force in Europe. Army leaders called upon officers to develop needed, creative approaches to dealing with this challenge. They were encouraged to fully explore the Army's Be All That You Can Be slogan. In response, U.S. Army Lieutenant Colonel Jim Channon created the 1st Earth Battalion. It collected new technologies to support a conceptual prototype of the soldiers of the future. Channon was inspired by the human potential and advanced human performance movements and drew many of his ideas from these fields and from the time he spent at the Esalen, E-S-A-L-E-N, Esalen Institute. If you don't know what that is, Google it. Many senior generals in the Army backed Channon because he was a bold example of what a young officer could do creatively. The word spread and the other elements within the Army became more boldly involved in testing ideas that were on the edge. They came to call Channon the lightning rod. Like any endeavor that involves studying new ideas, some of the ideas panned out and others did not. That's just the way of life. The larger story is that the U.S. Army is one of the most creative organizations in the world and that it must continue to be so in order to deal with the radically different missions it must prepare for. Few people understand that reality because of the rigid prototype the media has created around military culture. Jim Channon delivered his ideas about the 1st Earth Battalion through his illustrated field manual. Evolutionary Tactics, which offered a 21st century vision of the soldier of the future. It was published by the Army in 1978. The manual was modeled after the popular Whole Earth Catalog with illustrations of advanced human performance skills. It is credited with kickstarting a very creative surge of activity in the U.S. Army. Army commanders adopted the elements that served them. Original copies have become something of a collector's item. Since that time, tens of thousands of copies have been downloaded from the internet by fans across the globe. The archetype used in the manual is the warrior monk, invincible in war, but very persuasive in peace. You know, sometimes truth is much, much stranger than fiction. Well, that's the show for this week. I hope you enjoyed it. Be with me next week as we come back with another story or another group of stories for Terry's Mysterious Moments. I want to remind you that on Mondays, Aaron Hunter brings you Real Paranormal Activity, the podcast, which is listener stories that Aaron tells, mostly ghost stories. On Tuesdays, we have Aaron Frail with Aaron's Horror Show, where he reviews horror movies, different books, uh, things that he's written. Wednesdays, it's me, Terry's Mysterious Moments, with me, Terry from Texas, where we cover just about anything you can think of. We also have video productions on the first Friday of the month from The Witching Hour and from Unexplained Cases. Also remember that you can go to your app store, whether you have an Apple or an Android. You can go to your app store, look for the RPA app. It's 
a black square with a blue eye right in the middle of it. You can't miss it. And you can download that app, install it into the device you uh, listen to the programs on, and that way you will not have to go looking for the programs. They'll be right there. Do that. It'll be a lot easier for you to get to the stories. That's about it. I hope everybody has a good week. Thanks for being here. Bye-bye.